Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with a hearing today before Judge Raymond Deary, the special master appointed by Federal District Judge Eileen Cannon, at which the Department of Justice lawyers and Trump's lawyers made arguments over whether the classified documents retrieved at Mar-a-Lago are classified, which Trump claims without any proof that they are not because he declassified them. This prompted Judge Deary to essentially say to Trump's lawyer to put up or shut up, and if you, quote, don't advance any claim of declassification, I'm left with a prima facie case of classified documents. Joining us is Karen Greenberg, Director of the Center on National Security at Fordham Law School, an International Studies Fellow at the New America Foundation and a permanent member of the Council on Foreign Relations. A noted expert on national security, terrorism, and civil liberties, she's the author of The Least Worst Place, Guantanamo's First 100 Days, and Rogue Justice, The Making of the Security State. And her latest book is Subtle Tools, The Dismantling of American Democracy from the War on Terror to Donald Trump. We will discuss her article at Tom Dispatch, Donald Trump and the Presidential Privatization of Secrecy. Then, following President Biden's announcement today in support of the Disclose Act in which he urged the Senate to vote to get dark money out of politics, we will speak with Craig Holman, the Government Affairs Legislative Representative for Public Citizen, where he works on Capitol Hill on campaign finance and government ethics. Previously, he was Senior Policy Analyst at the Brennan Center for Justice at the New York University School of Law, and we will discuss how the overwhelming majority of Americans want to know who is funding political campaigns, but the Republicans want to keep their donors secret. Then finally, we'll look into the regime's violent crackdown on demonstrations across Iran in response to the death of a young 22-year-old Kurdish woman in the custody of the morality police, morality police who arrested her because her hijab was not all-encompassing. Joining us is Nada Hashemi who is the director of the Center on Middle East Studies at the Joseph Corbell School of International Studies at the University of Denver. He's the author of The People Reloaded, The Green Movement and the Struggle for Iran's Future, and his latest book is Sectarianization, Mapping the New Politics of the Middle East. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Karen Greenberg, the Director of the Center on National Security and an International Studies Fellow at the New America Foundation and a permanent member of the Council on Foreign Relations a noted expert on national security, terrorism, and civil liberties. She's the author of The Least Worst Place, Guantanamo's First 100 Days, and Rogue Justice, The Making of the Security State. And her latest book is Subtle Tools, The Dismantling of American Democracy from the War on Terror to Donald Trump. And she has an article at Tom Dispatch, Donald Trump and the Presidential Privatization of Secrecy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Karen Greenberg. So nice to be here. Thank you for having me. 
Well, thanks for joining us, Karen. And today, Trump's lawyers and the Department of Justice's lawyers met before Judge Deary in Brooklyn. He is the special master appointed by Judge Eileen Cannon in Florida. And it looks as if the takeaway was a 40-minute session or hearing. I guess the takeaway is that Judge Deary essentially called Trump's bluff and basically said to his lawyers, you know, put up a shut up. I'll just quote from what he said. If the government gives me prima facie evidence that they are classified documents and you don't advance any claim of declassification, I'm left with a prima facie case of classified documents. And as far as I'm concerned, that's the end of it. And he also seems to want to get this over with pretty quickly. And it's obviously clear that the Trump people are all about delay, delay, delay. So what do you expect to happen here? Well, first of all, I think you summed it up very nicely. There are basically two issues. One is the timeline uh, and that Judge Deary has set a very soon timeline, uh, which is October 7th. He has to wrap everything up by November 30th. And the other one is what's classified and not and, and what isn't classified. And prior to this hearing, Deary had asked for the Trump lawyers to and the Trump team to let him know what was declassified and when it was declassified. So, yes, you're right. It looks like what's going on here are two things. One is attempts to delay on the uh, Trump team. And two is a counter procedure on the the part, a counter move on the part of the Department of Justice, which is every time they seem to ask for a delay, the kind of things that get litigated in the court seem to work against them. And so it's it's moving forward in this very tense situation in which the issue of what can be seen, whether when it can be seen, and who's, who's in charge of these documents is still at issue. Um, and so what I think is going to happen, I think that, that the judge has made it clear that he doesn't want to see any delays. There's a whole other proceeding going on in the 11th Circuit Court over uh, over these same uh, documents. And so, you know, uh, the that that case is about not letting the uh, investigation, the criminal investigation, be stopped while the special master reviews these materials. So what's really happening is exactly what you said. They're trying to delay until potentially after the midterms. And it looks like even though they picked, this was their nominee, this judge was on their list and the DOJ said, okay. It looks like they're not having such an easy go of it, but we'll see. During today's hearing with the special master, Judge Deary, the 11th Circuit Court appeal did come up and the DOJ's lawyers hinted that they were going to go to the Supreme Court if they didn't get relief from the 11th Circuit. So that was interesting, don't you think, that the DOJ is determined? Yeah, I think they've made it clear from the very beginning, following all of this, all of these proceedings, um, that they are they are intent. They're not going to give up. They want this to happen. They want access to those classified uh, documents for their investigation sooner rather than later. And um, the next step will be the if they don't get what they want from the Eleventh Circuit, the next step will be the Supreme Court. And yes, I think that was interesting that they that they mentioned that and made that clear today in the courtroom. And I wouldn't be surprised if if that's what. Uh, happens. So, um, you know, the stakes are, are high here. And um, and it makes sense that this would end up one way or another in the Supreme Court, which is a little worrisome given who's on the Supreme Court and what they might decide. Well, it's also worrisome, isn't it, Karen Greenberg, that 
whatever Judge Deary decides, and it looks as if he's going to decide to expedite this quickly, and that basically Trump doesn't really have a case unless he can prove somehow that he declassified these documents, which not even his own lawyers wanted to do that, that once he makes his decision, Judge Cannon in Florida can overrule it, right? I, you know, she she can, but I, that would be sort of sort of hurting herself. She's the one that set this in motion. Um, she she said in her original orders that one of the things he needs to do, in addition to deciding issues that have to do with executive privilege and attorney-client privilege, she said that he also had to make decisions about different kinds of classifications. And so I think, in a way, you know, she opened the door for the kind of thing he was talking about today. So um, I'm, I'm not really sure this, where this would be headed. I think that, look, the idea is delay. So the more procedures that they can intervene with, the better. So I'm sure, yes, it would be great on the Trump lawyer's part to be able to go round and round on this. I'm not sure that's going to happen. I'm not sure Deary is going to play it that way. Um, I think there is a lot going on in courts around the country um, and that there's just – this isn't just about Donald Trump. I think this is the important part. It's not just about Donald Trump. It is about what powers a president can have over um, the documents that were created under his administration when he leaves office. And that is that is a major point that speaks to a much larger issue than just what Donald Trump did. The, the kind of precedent that can be set, the kind of um, – um, a license that can be taken with the idea that a president on his way out the door can decide what to what to let be known for posterity for his successor um, has so many implications and so it's really not just and I think that Deary and others recognize that this is really not just about um, former President Trump. And again, I'm speaking with Karen Greenberg, Director of the Center on National Security at Fordham Law School and International Studies Fellow at the New America Foundation and a permanent member of the Council on Foreign Relations, a noted expert on national security, terrorism and civil liberties. She's the author of The Least Worst Place, Guantanamo's First 100 Days and Rogue Justice, The Making of the Security State. And her latest book is Subtle Tools, The Dismantling of American Democracy from the War on Terror to Donald Trump. And she has an article at Tom Dispatch, Donald Trump and the Presidential Privatization of Secrecy. Well, it does seem that part of Trump's problem is that he gets rid of all the adults in the room and then he ends up with people like Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell. You know, it's not even the B team. It's like the, the Z team. Is that happening with him, with lawyers? I don't know much about Jim Trusty, the lawyer that made the arguments today. But one of the things that Trump's lawyer today kept saying, he kept referring to Trump as the president, and I'm the president's lawyer. I mean, surely he's not sharing in Trump's delusion that Trump won the last election and is somehow the de facto president. No, I don't think he is, and I and I and I I I, I don't think he is. I I think that um, what has happened is that in filing after filing on by Trump's lawyers, and it's been different lawyers throughout, there's been a constant critique from a legal community across the the um, political spectrum about the weakness of the arguments that they're putting forth. Um, and so I don't know if that's because they're rushed or because they know that they're on um, fragile ground or because the the criticism of Trump has gotten broader and broader and 
in terms of who's willing to um, come up and criticize him and his legal strategy and his um, and his political you know, attempts to interfere with the legal system. And I think um, what you're seeing is it's not just that he picks certain lawyers, um, and some of which whom have been, you know, laughable. It's that it's that lawyers that he expected to be on his side are also beginning to criticize him. For example, you know, former Attorney General and most notably former Attorney General um, William Barr. And so he's losing a good bit of the legal constituency that I think he thought he had. Well, it does seem, though, that, as we've discussed, this is all a delaying tactic, and uh, you've mentioned how, if it gets to the Supreme Court, it's not even a sure thing. I mentioned the possibility that it does actually go back to the judge who appointed him, and my understanding is that one of the reasons that Trump put Deary on the list was that he was a Pfizer judge on the Carter Page case, and he is, apparently they assumed that because that turned out to have problems, uh, that maybe the judge would be favorable to them. So let's start with that. Did, do you think they made the wrong calculation there? I think they made the wrong calculation, and I think they've made it repeatedly about who's going to be in their camp, um, because this, as I tried to say before, the stakes here are much bigger. This is not just about this case, and not and and the the worse it looks for Trump, the worse it looks for people who continue to associate with him, the worse it looks legally for Trump, the worse it looks for people who are continuing to associate with him. And so as they fall aside, Deary's gonna tr- Deary has a reputation of his own um, to, to you know protect. He's going to do things in a way that are um, judicial, that are uh, that respect the law, and and that's what he basically said in court today that he was trying to do, which was that it's not his job to decide what's classified and not classified because it's not a judicial decision. That was a way of saying he recognizes the uh, boundaries that are given for whatever the institution is, and I think that um, so I, I think we do we could see more delays ahead. But I think that Deary's um, signaling in his earlier um, request for October 7th that he wants to do this expeditiously is something he'll he'll try to um, to keep in mind. Um, and so, you know, this is all extremely politically fraught. But with every single iteration of what happens, the DOJ has responded in ways that produce more evidence, more facts, um, and more um, legal rationale that seem to undermine what the strategy that Trump is trying to do, at least legally. And so Trump is left with just how can I delay, how can I delay, how can I delay? And so it's a real test of the of the judicial system to seeing, you know, how much back and forth can happen before decisions are made that can that can hold. Well over the weekend the Attorney General Merrick Garland made an address at Ellis Island where he talked about his family being immigrants and that the great virtue of the United States is is the rule of law, and that the rule of law means that nobody is above the law. So I think you can make, well, can you make an interpretation from that, that uh, that's important in terms of where Garland is at, that he's simply not going to allow anybody to make the case that he's above the law, and, and implicitly that is what Trump has been doing. 
Right. I think that's where they start. That was an amazing speech, and I and I recommend that anybody um, who's listening um, sh- should read it. Um, because what he really said was they came for the protections of law, the protections of the rule of law. And that was what he emphasized, which was that this is what protects us as citizens in, in this democracy. And, um, and I do think that he's shown that he is extremely committed to this. The question is, you know, can the time take move in such a way that law can um, can overcome the politics of it and um, there, I, I think they're they are putting an incredible amount of uh, intention and energy into this and clarity um, and they and that's why the 11th Circuit um, case is so important because the question is can they go forward with this investigation of those based on those classified documents and um, it's important for them so and that may get to the Supreme Court but in terms in terms of Attorney General Garland, he has made it very clear that he is he is putting the efforts of his department behind this, that, that he's also conveying that he has a strong case. And even if he doesn't say all the facts that he has or everything that they know or everything that they're looking into, he conveys with additional um, sort of an additional heft every single time he speaks that they have a strong case. And that's what's coming across even without all of the details being known. And Karen Greenberg, in your article at Tom Dispatch, Donald Trump and the presidential privatization of secrecy, you make it clear that, uh, and many have said this before, that there's an overclassification and that many previous presidents like George W. Bush and Barack Obama classified an awful lot of stuff and when they may have talked about transparency but they didn't practice it. In the case of the criminal investigation into Trump and these classified documents, the one thing that we, we haven't learned from the beginning is why did he do it in the first place? And then two, what did he do with these documents? You have a whole bunch of empty, top-secret SCI folders, but you don't know what happened to the contents. And doesn't that, that changes, the, this is a whole different ball game from what I can tell. And doesn't that mean that there's an urgency to this uh, investigation? That we, don't we need to find out for the purposes of the country's national security? And apparently, at least one of the documents involves the national security of another country and their nuclear weapons and their defense programs. So that would seem to yeah, indicate it, to me that we're talking about an urgent need here, and I'm astounded at the, the Florida judge's initial ruling to put a hold on this, to stop this investigation in its tracks. It's still suspended, but... Right, right. but do remember that she did make a... Judge, judge Cannon did make a carve-out for um, the director of national intelligence to be able to review um, the documents uh, and to, to, to see what kind of damage to national security might have been done. So there was a carve-out, if not for the judicial process, then for the national security uh, concerns. But you are absolutely right that there are issues of tremendous importance potentially here in terms of um, compromising sources and assets around the world, in terms of what information might have been shared by the the amount of visitors to Mar-a-Lago over these past months. Um, or this past year and a half, um, the the um, there are 
you know, if you want to play it out, there are terrible things that could have happened. And one of the things that that the Department of Justice is really focused on is the chain of custody. Where, where, what you were referring to? Where did the documents go? Can we figure this out? Um, who has seen them? Where have they been? And again, that in and of itself is an entire investigation. And as you suggested, um, nothing to be taken lightly. Which is, um, which is, I think why Judge Cannon made it clear that, at least from the intelligence community point of view, there needed to be access to these documents now to assess um, damage. But the DOJ, in their, in their filing and rebuttal to what she had done, said that you can't separate the criminal investigation of the FBI and the DOJ from That's the right. DNI's investigation. I mean, That's right. The, the Department of Justice have every reason um, to, you know, from my point of view, um, and and many, to to want to see these documents and to be able to go forward in their investigation. And and um, you know the the way they're going about this, you it looks like they are trying to leave no stone unturned, and they're gonna they're fighting this as hard as they can and as rapidly as they can. Um, but this is the process, and this is what it looks like, and they don't have a, a, dec- a you know a magic wand that can make this all uh, the obstacles go away. And that's why this is such an important moment in American democracy, because this is a uh, this is a fight that, you know, for the rule of law, as you mentioned, um, Attorney General Garland mentioning, um, for the rule of law and for a sense of trust in our institutions. This is a moment in which you want the, um, the country's ability to keep the country safe by to be respected. And you don't want obstacles that can be detrimental to, uh, to, to win the day. On the other hand, there is something to process. These are the procedures we've put in place. They're frustrating. They're disappointing. Um, but, but that's why it's important to see that the, that they can do this in a timely fashion and in a way that makes, um, the citizens of the country feel like their national security is being protected, and that's not going to be easy, but this is what the Department of Justice is trying to do. So just to go back to your article in closing here, Karen Greenberg, uh, your article, Tom Dispatch, Donald Trump and the Presidential Privatization of Secrecy, you say, still, let's recognize what Donald Trump has in fact done. Though no longer president, he has now taken the withholding of government information well beyond the borders of the government itself and deep into his private realm. So that really is amazing, isn't it? And it should be a wake-up call for everybody. It should be. And and what my article argues is that incrementally we've gotten such a, a, a tolerance um, over the course of this century and several presidents, we've gotten such a tolerance for secrecy and classification um, that that it got to a point where, you know, Trump, this was not his first attempt at information holding. You know, he um, he stopped disclosing visitor logs to the White House. He um, made it so that meetings couldn't be taken at high level, uh, minutes couldn't be taken at high level meetings, including with members of his cabinet. Um, um, there was a tolerance for uh, not not just not just erasing the record or not just hiding the record, but not even creating the record. Um, and we saw that in numerous occasions. Um, and then, as we saw, departments of his administration that deleted emails after January 6th, etc. So this is a pattern that got out of hand. And then to take something in which administrations and presidents had taken more and more liberties with how much they could keep secret, um, 
and sometimes to cover unlawful acts. And then he took it one step further, which is to make them his personal um, his personal domain rather than that of the public, which belonged to the public. Um, and it's quite a defiant act, but it's a difference of degree, not of kind. And just in closing, one of the questions that looms then is, did he, did he monetize, and not just privatize, but monetize secrets? I mean, when Ronald Reagan picked Bill Casey to be the director of Central Intelligence, Casey didn't really want to put his fortune into a blind trust. You can make an awful lot of money if you get the top secrets that the government has from the NSA and the, D- and the CIA, etc. You know, for example, <laughs> on the commodities market. You could make a fortune yeah. if you had the quality of information. And some of the members of the, the Senate Intelligence Committee got into trouble because they were making stock uh, deals based upon inside information they got from the intelligence community. So that is a real problem, and Trump seems to have really... The fact that these documents are missing, we don't know where they've gone, raises that question, was he trying to monetize these secrets? And this is what we want the Department of Justice to get to the bottom of. And the sooner they can get to the bottom of it, the better, which is why Judge Deary's October 7th deadline is actually something that will be very good for uh, this case and therefore for the country. Well, Karen Greenberg, I thank you so much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. And again, I've been speaking with Karen Greenberg, who's the director of the Center on National Security at Fordham Law School and an International Studies Fellow at the New America Foundation and a permanent member of the Council on Foreign Relations, a noted expert on national security, terrorism, and civil liberties. She's the author of The Least Worst Place, Guantanamo's First 100 Days, and Rogue Justice, The Making of the Security State. And her latest book is Subtle Tools, The Dismantling of American Democracy from the War on Terror to Donald Trump. And she has an article at Tom Dispatch, Donald Trump and the Presidential Privatization of Secrecy. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into President Biden's announcement today in support of the Disclose Act and how the overwhelming majority of Americans want to know who is funding political campaigns, but the Republicans want to keep their donors secret. I'm more important in the USA than a spy for the FBI. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Craig Holman, the Government Affairs Legislative Representative for Public Citizen, where he works on Capitol Hill on campaign finance and government ethics. Previously, he was Senior Policy Analyst at the Brennan Center for Justice at the New York University School of Law. Welcome to Background Briefing, Craig Holman. Glad to be here, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Craig. And today, President Biden made an announcement that he's trying to push through the Disclose Act. It's been languishing for decades ever since uh, it was first uh, introduced just after Citizens United was uh, ruled by the Supreme Court, which has completely destroyed our political system by allowing endless amounts of dark money, unattributed money. And of course, in his address today, President Biden mentioned the $1.6 billion donation from one particular wealthy individual to Leonard Leo. He didn't mention Leonard Leo by name, but said that 
this is dark money that's going to be deployed in this November election. It's obviously being deployed already. So yeah. what are the chances then? Of uh, I mean, they, I can't imagine the Republicans in the Senate are going to support this. Uh, so far, we haven't seen any sign of Republicans backing the Disclose Act. Uh, this, uh, the Disclose Act, in order to be approved, has to get at least 10 Republicans to sign on, along with all the Democrats. It is subject to the filibuster, and uh, Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader, has called for the filibuster of the Disclose Act. This has been going on, as you mentioned, since 2010. The Disclose Act was first introduced shortly after the Citizens United decision just to open the books on the secret dark money that is flowing into our elections. It would not reverse Citizens United. Uh, wealthy individuals, special interest groups can still spend unlimited amounts of money in elections due to Citizens United. But the one thing we should do is at least know where that money is coming from and how it's being spent. Uh, we don't for, for a good, good portion of the amount of money that's being spent in federal elections. You see, all a wealthy interest person has to do or a special interest group is launder the money through a nonprofit organization and then that automatically avoids uh, disclosure of where the money is coming from or how it's being spent. The Disclose Act would require all nonprofits who are involved in elections to disclose all the donors of $10,000 or more for their electioneering purposes and also disclose how that money is being spent. So this would actually open up the books. It's a very popular legislative proposal among voters, among Republicans, Democrats, and independents alike. But Mitch McConnell and the Republican caucus in the Senate have for more than a decade seen dark money uh, apparently as something that benefits them more. And so they've prevented this disclosure uh, to the American public as to where this money is coming from. Well, I would say, Craig, that $1.6 billion from one donor in dark money to influence the midterms coming up in, what, about seven weeks is, is a serious benefit to the Republicans. No wonder they, don't, they want to hold on to this. Uh, this. Yeah, that, that is a record-breaking uh, dark money contribution. We've never seen $1.6 billion before. Uh, that, that just breaks all, all records. But there's a lot of dark money going on in, in our elections. And by the way, it isn't just from some billionaire, as in this particular case. Uh, dark money comes from foreign governments, uh, from Russia, from you know any number of special interests that for some reason don't want the American voters to know they're the ones behind this money. So in the last election, I believe that the Democrats raised more dark money than the Republicans. Yeah, it is a bipartisan problem, uh, with, without a doubt. But, you know, even though the Democrats have benefited from dark money, it really has been just the Democratic caucus in Congress that really wants to get rid of dark money and open up the books on this. Uh, the Democrats, many Democrats, 
are of the attitude that, well, if dark money is going to exist, you know, uh, they're not going to turn it down for themselves. But, you know, it just shows it is a bipartisan problem. But it's something that, that members of Congress should fully listen to voters on. Voters want to know where this money is coming from, and Congress should comply. So this is a popular issue then, and Schum was introducing the bill, what, tomorrow or Thursday? Uh, probably tomorrow. It's either Wednesday or Thursday, but mm. the last I've heard is that he's planning on doing it tomorrow, on Wednesday. So, and you said McConnell, the minority leader of the Senate, is whipping everybody not to vote on it. And by the way, in his, in his announcement today, President Biden did talk about his friend John McCain and his work on campaign finance. That's not going to carry any weight with the Republicans? There's no nostalgia for John McCain? The Republican caucus really no longer admires John McCain. And that's a great loss. John McCain marked a time when, uh, you know, moderate Republicans had a lot of sway within the party. But now we've seen the Republican Party just become very ideological uh, on the conservative side. And, you know, moderates, Liz Cheney, are getting chased out of the party. So, yeah, no, it, it doesn't look very optimistic for the final vote on the Disclose Act tomorrow. Uh, we haven't heard hardly any Republicans that are willing to break ranks with Mitch McConnell. And that's really the point. Schumer it just got so frustrated not being able to get 10 Republicans to sign on that he's bringing it to a floor vote and he's going to make the Republican caucus vote against disclosure. So that will be the net gain here. It's a name and shame operation. Yes, that is really largely what's going on. Who knows? You know, maybe, I mean, there there's like over a hundred different civic groups that are lobbying to try to get some Republicans to support the Disclose Act tomorrow. You know, who knows? Maybe, maybe there will be 10 Republicans who put the public's interest above, uh, above Mitch McConnell's. But uh, at this point, I, I think that's unlikely. And Craig Holman, what's happening on the House side? They got a thin majority, but they're likely to, I mean, are they going to take a vote or is it just the vote in the Senate it's enough really to kill? Just, it's really just a battle in the Senate. The House has already approved the Disclose Act over and over. Uh, it, it dies in the Senate because of the filibuster. Well, I can understand why the public support the Disclose Act, because Citizens United has been a catastrophe. And the judges that, on the Supreme Court that approved it were put on there largely by Leonard Leo, who is the recipient of the $1.6 billion in dark money, and by the way, Biden pointed that out today, that we wouldn't have even known about that donor that gave Leonard Lee a $1.6 billion, but for a leak to the press. So yeah. <laughs> the fact that we, don't e we wouldn't have even known about the, the $1.6 billion in itself tells you how sick this system is. And it is interesting, too. This donor has been using a lot of his money uh, to basically stack the Supreme Court uh, so that 
issues like Citizens United uh, will dominate. Corporate control over American politics will dominate. That's what this money is being used for. And yeah, I mean, it's really sad. Had there not been some inside informants that told reporters about this $1.6 billion, we wouldn't even be talking about it today. And that money would be used uh, in our election. So just to talk a little bit, I know I've, for years I've been talking about Leonard Leo's extraordinary influence for this one man who has reshaped the entire federal judiciary. And we've seen the results of that with that judge down in Florida who ruled in Trump's favor to delay uh, the investigation into these missing classified documents. I mean, talk about a, a partisan ruling. And uh, Leo has... He got John Roberts and Alito on the court, and they were able to move the center of gravity so that they could get Citizens United passed in the first place, right? And then after that, he became the beneficiary of half a billion dollars through Judicial Crisis Network and these other front groups that he created that got Gorsuch, Amy Coney Barrett, and Kavanaugh on the court. So now you have a supermajority of arch-conservatives completely owing their positions on the court to Leonard Leo. The same is through the, the judiciary. They made sure they got young judges that complete, that seemed like to total ideologues in the case of this woman and this other judge that they put down in Mazel down in Florida. They're outrageously unqualified and are clear political hacks. This is what this guy's already done. One man. That's, that's right. <laughs> Overturning Roe versus Wade was part of Leo's plan as well. You know, you got Donald Trump, you got Leo, you got Mitch McConnell, who have spent the last four years uh, rigging the court system, uh, you know, planting young ideological conservatives who, by the way, were even screened by right wing groups to make sure that they wouldn't suddenly become independent once they uh, were appointed to a, a judge a judgeship. So we're stuck with a judicial system that is more partisan, more political and less credible than we've ever seen in history. And the same person who managed to achieve the capture of the federal bench and the Supreme Court is now turning his attention to rescue the Republicans in the midterms with $1.6 billion of dark money. That is absolutely correct. I mean, uh, you know, uh, Leo very much wants the Republicans to take both chambers of Congress and, you know, and that's only the beginning. Uh, you know, he's also aiming for 2024 for the presidential election. And that's a lot of money that can buy a lot of ads and influence. And it's all the more effective if American voters don't actually realize there's this one guy named Leo behind all these ads that they're going to see on, te on television. So... Since this is going to be blocked by McConnell and President Biden's announcement today in this White House, it wasn't a press conference, although he did answer a couple of questions at the end from the press. It sounds more political than substantive in as much as it's, it's predetermined that it's not going to pass in the Senate. So he's just shaming the McConnell, and hopefully the public will remember, since the public, as you pointed out, Craig, 
overwhelmingly support the Disclose Act and getting rid of dark money. So that's the political reality. But money does talk, and there'll be an avalanche of money. And what Leo is also doing with this money, and a lot of it's coming from plutocrats, including this one, one guy in Chicago who gave the $1.6 billion, what they're trying to do is deconstruct the administrative state, which is what Stephen Bannon once proclaimed. Isn't that the agenda, to take away the government's ability to regulate just about anything, including the Securities and Exchange Commission, which, of course, would be a gift to plutocrats if the SEC, was, if there was no policeman on the, on the beat on Wall Street? That is one of the biggest objectives of the very wealthy conservative interests, uh, you know, and and they're getting the help of their their own court system. The conservative court system now is uh, not helping defend regulatory agencies so much, but is you know perfectly willing or has shown an inclination to, including the U.S. Supreme Court, to allow regulatory agencies to actually be sidelined. Uh, by the conservative agenda. So we are seeing that happen, yes, indeed. So just in closing, what can our listeners do? What can anybody do? I think Biden did the right thing to do as much as he can, but it's a foregone conclusion that the Disclose Act is not going to pass the Senate and he's not going to be able to sign it, as he said he hoped to do today. Uh, first of all, I want to point out it's it's likely not going to pass because the Republicans haven't shown an interest in breaking ranks from Mitch McConnell. But I'm not entirely giving up hope yet. I mean, I'm going to lobby for this tomorrow as well. And we'll see if we can get some Republicans on board. What others can do, Republican voters, if we fail uh, with the Disclose Act, and, you know, that's quite a strong possibility, uh, what Republican voters can do is take a look at their representatives in Congress and uh, and reevaluate. Is that the kind of Republican you want to have in the House of Representatives and the Senate? Uh, take a good close look. Take a look at how they vote. It will be on record tomorrow afternoon. Well, Craig Holman, I thank you very much for joining us here today. A pleasure, Ian. Always a pleasure. And again, I'm speaking with... And again, I've been speaking with Craig Holman, who's the Government Affairs Legislative Representative for Public Citizen, where he works on Capitol Hill on campaign finance and government ethics. Previously, he was Senior Policy Analyst at the Brennan Center for Justice at the New York University School of Law. We're going to take a brief station break and back look into the regime's violent crackdown on demonstrations across Iran in response to the death of a 22-year-old Kurdish woman in the custody of the Morality Police.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Nada Hashimi, who's the director of the Center for Middle East Studies at the Joseph Corbell School of International Studies at the University of Denver. He's the author of The People Reloaded, The Green Movement and the Struggle for Iran's Future. And his latest book is Sectarianization, Mapping the New Politics of the Middle East. Welcome to Background Briefing, Nada Hashimi. Thanks, Ian. So there's been a tremendous outpouring of support for this young Kurdish woman, Masha Amini, a 22-year-old Kurdish woman from Western Iran, who was visiting Tehran, the capital, this month, and she was arrested at a metro station by the morality police because they didn't think her hijab was sufficiently uh, in line with the ultra-conservative dress codes for women that the new leader, the president, Raisi, has implemented. He, by the way, is visiting New York as we speak. Uh, he's going to be speaking at the United Nations as the General Assembly gets underway today. So the demonstrations that followed in support of this young woman who died in custody and looks as if she was beaten. She had a heart attack, apparently. So there have been, I think, about five deaths in the demonstrations that took place in, more in the Kurdish neighborhood and cities in western Iran, but also in Tehran itself. So what does it say to you, Nada, because you obviously, you know, you wrote about the Green Movement and you've been following the underground democratic movement in Iran. Where does it stand? Well, this is another deep moment of crisis for the Islamic Republic of Iran. They're facing uh, a citizen's revolt led by women over the murder of um, uh, Massa Amini, the 21-year-old um, woman from the Kurdish part of Iran who was you know, killed in police custody. Um, it remains to be seen how far these demonstrations are going to go and how long they will last. Now, obviously, all of us who are on the democratic side of the debate hope that this is sort of a another green movement moment for the people of Iran. Um, I'm somewhat skeptical that um, that will happen largely because, you know, Iran is a very different place today than it was in 2009. And I'm referring specifically to the, you know, the social, economic and political conditions that are defined by expanding, you know, state repression and then economic um, mass poverty and pauperization. Um, that, you know, inhibit people from organizing socially and politically. There's a general sense that people are just trying to survive. But of course, what we're seeing right now is just a raw outpouring of emotion over the um, the the um, the murder of this young woman. Um, it's been accurately described as an act of state terrorism. Um, and it remains to be seen how far it's going to go. Well, the problem is that if you demonstrate in Iran, you get shot, right? I mean, the, this regime is ruthless, particularly under the new leadership of Raisi. No, that's correct. Um, uh, for people who are following Iran, they'll know that there was a, um, a similar moment in uh, November 2019, when in response to rising fuel prices, there was a major outpouring of protest and um, discontent in Iranian cities and provinces. Um, the regime responded by shutting down the internet and brutally cracking down killing, um, you know, between 500 and perhaps over a thousand protesters in a few days, uh, reestablishing control. So we're talking about a brutal regime that has a lot of blood on its hands and a, a president that um, himself is a certifiable 
you know, war criminal in the sense that, you know, he was one of the infamous judges who in 1988, you know, presided over the massacre of several thousands of political prisoners in Iran. And so now he's the head of state. But I would argue that, you know, this is not about um, one individual. It's about an authoritarian repressive apparatus that has been in power for a very long time that has grown more repressive. But now they're facing citizen opposition. Um, so it's it's encouraging to see these protests. Um, um, it's really an open question how far they're going to go. But it's clear that the the regime in Iran has been deeply shaken uh, by these protests. The, um, the 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 head of the morality police in Iran has been has been fired. Um, that's clearly an attempt by the regime to do damage control. The supreme leader has sent a representative to the family of this woman who was killed to um, uh, send a message that the you know the supreme leader is also upset over this state of affairs. But of course, that's just classic authoritarian propaganda. Um, so we have to see how things develop, Ian. I think we're we're all inspired by the heroism, as you indicated, of protesters in Iran under these social conditions of oppression, you know, challenging security forces. Um, I'm very worried that, you know, we're going to see another crackdown and a lot of um, blood spilt, but that remains to be seen. Well, when Racy introduced these, the strict enforcement of these new dress codes last month, a group of women, they photographed themselves without headscarves and posted pictures on social media. So how much does the underground work there? You've got an oppressive religious police and an oppressive government, but what kind of guerrilla tactics are there, in other words, to get the word out? Because it seems to me pretty obvious that Iran is a country where at least the people in the cities are just thoroughly fed up with the government. In the countryside, maybe less so. So this is a situation that's ripe for revolution, but of course, as we pointed out, uh, the government has become more and more repressive over the years, and they're willing to be thoroughly ruthless. That's absolutely correct, Ian. I've argued for a very long time that the social conditions for a um, citizen's revolt are all in place uh, internally within Iran. And what I mean by that is that the regime, after you know 40 plus years, suffers from a deep and expanding crisis of legitimacy particularly in the eyes of young people, educated people, women, university students, intellectuals. Um, that's um, uh, non-controversial. Um, I think the regime um, has a base of support, but it's, I think it's a very narrow base um, comprised of you know, regime ideologues, but also people who benefit from the authoritarian status quo. In other words, in all authoritarian systems, you have people who are not ideologically um, uh, believers in the ideology of the ruling regime. They just support the regime because they derive material benefits. So that's an element of support. But it's clear that, you know, if ever there was a free and fair election in Iran, that the regime would lose very convincingly. Um, I was the view, I, I was of the view that, look, you know, after the crushing of the Green Movement in 2009, um, things were headed in a very dark direction. I think what we're seeing right now, the big, I think, challenge that the um, forces of democracy have in Iran right now is that the international conditions are not conducive uh, to democracy. And what I mean by that, um, when a country is heavily sanctioned, when there's a threat of war hanging over um, a particular country, in this case, Iran, 
those social conditions, those regional and international conditions tend to favor the forces of authoritarianism who will frequently talk about external threats, who will um, try to rally people around the flag. Uh, and then, of course, the, the most important, I think, element that really has suffocated the forces of democracy in Iran is the, the economic conditions that have been brought on by Donald Trump's withdrawal of the Iran nuclear agreement. I've argued uh, both in print and in public that a reestablishing of the Iran nuclear agreement and the revival of Iran's economy will be a development that will be conducive to democratization, largely because people will be able to breathe again. They won't be struggling for survival. Um, it will help the forces of democracy, um, not immediately, but over the long term. Um, and so I think that's an important missing ingredient. It's very difficult to think about democratization under the current social economic conditions of severe sanction, um, which inadvertently and ironically actually do um, support the hardliners in Iran and allow them to, you know, benefit politically, but also ideologically. So I think when you look at it from that perspective, I think my best um, educated estimate is that we are still a long way away from um, a democratic uprising that will lead to the toppling of this regime. Um, but I think the ingredients are very much in place. Uh, I think of the social conditions that I spoke about, particularly the regional and international conditions, shift in a positive way that will benefit the forces for democracy within Iran. So in terms of the regime's foreign policy, it looks as though they may be joining the Chinese-led Shanghai Cooperation Organization they're selling military equipment, drones, to Russia to be used in Ukraine. They're not doing that well in Iraq, where Muqtad Sadr's his people are violently opposed. They're Iraqi nationalists. So what's your sense of their, their situation in terms of foreign policy? You're arguing that foreign threats and sanctions give the regime legitimacy as people rally around the flag because of external threats. The external threats haven't gone away, right? Israel is still concerned about the extent to which the Iran is getting close to having nuclear weapons. They may well have enough nuclear fuel for a bomb. So what's your sense about whether Iran is getting more friends, uh, more support from abroad, particularly from Russia and perhaps from China? China doesn't love a lot of trade with them vis-a-vis -vis where they may be vulnerable, like in Iraq. Yeah, they're very vulnerable in Iraq and they're very vulnerable throughout the Middle East. You know, prior to the Arab Spring, Iran was able to present itself as an ally of the oppressed masses of the Middle East. And, and there was a certain element of, so, of soft power that they could sort of utilize uh, to distinguish themselves between other authoritarian regimes in the region, between Israel um, um, and um, and the existing sort of Arab autocracies that dominated the region. After the Arab Spring and Iran's, you know, expansion and intervention, particularly in Syria, its backing of Assad and its interventions in Iraq that um, completely contributed to the destabilization of that country, Iran's um, regional influence among the grassroots of Middle Eastern society have plummeted significantly. With respect to the great powers, you know, Iran has effectively formed an alliance with Russia and China, hoping that they will bail out Iran economically. They will provide Iran with the arms. So very much you're seeing, you know, a convergence of, you know, authoritarian tyrannies. Um, Iran, uh, Russia under Putin, uh, China under Xi Jinping, you know, coming together and reading from effectively the same uh, playbook. 
where they view uh, the question of democracy, open societies, human rights uh, with deep hostility. Um, and they, they, they want to sort of pursue, you know, coordinated strategies um, along those lines. Uh, the people of Iran, you know, are very critical of the regime's foreign policy. You know, you sometimes see these slogans on the street, people very critical of the amount of money that Iran has invested in um, Syria and Iraq and other parts of the world. Um, most Iranians who are on the street today protesting um, for human rights, well, they, they envision a very different future, a foreign policy that's much more in keeping with, you know, the ideals of human rights and democracy and those countries uh, in the international system that, you know, stand up to those ideals. So um, ironically, I would argue that this alliance that has emerged between Iran and um, China and Russia actually further undermines the legitimacy of the regime within the eyes of its own population, particularly young people and educated people who aspire to, you know, a more democratic and a more liberal future. Well, isn't there though a history of threats from Russia? Stalin tried to invade during World War II. Well, that's correct. No, Iranians, particularly Iranian nationalists of all stripes, you know, have a deep hostility toward uh, Russia because of the historic, you know, um, encounter and relationship between Iran and Russia. Large parts of Iran um, were occupied and then usurped by Russia in the 19th and, and 20th century. Um, you mentioned Stalin. You know, one of the first crises after the end of World War Two, uh, and at the outset of the Cold War was actually a crisis between the Soviet Union and Iran, where, you know, Russian aggression or Soviet aggression at that time, you know, had had, um, had sought to sort of um, dominate and um, compromise Iran's national sovereignty. So most Iranians, you know, uh, and this is like across the spectrum, nationalist, religious, secular, have this deep-seated hostility, and they view Vladimir Putin as sort of the embodiment of the, you know, the historic Russian bear that um, really doesn't care about Iran, Iran's national interests, the citizens of Iran, and has its own aggressive foreign policy. So the more that the Islamic Republic strikes deals with Putin and Russia, the more I would argue that inadvertently has a blowback effect in terms of undermining the legitimacy of the Islamic Republic within the eyes of its own population. So now, Dashmi, just in the last couple of minutes, let's turn to the arch-conservative Iranian president, Ibrahim Raisi's trip to New York this week. He will address the United Nations General Assembly about the country's relationships with Europe and in particular the United States. He says he's not going to meet with Biden. I can't imagine that Biden wants to meet with him. So what's he going to say? I mean, there's the fact that his people are being shot in the streets in his country over this appalling treatment of this, of this young woman, which has got the United Nations itself, the Human Rights Division of the United Nations, have issued a statement on Tuesday expressing alarm at her death and calling for an independent investigation. No, you're absolutely right. This is, a, um, in many ways, a nightmare scenario for Iran's hardline president because he's in New York speaking at the United Nations at the precise moment when Iranian security forces are beating up women, uh, killing uh, Iranian women in uh, state detention facilities. And there's a major um, you know, crisis back home in Iran. So no one is going to really believe anything he has to say. No one should believe what he has to say. He will sort of give the standard propaganda line that has become part of the staple of the Islamic Republic uh, of Iran's discourse over the last 40 years. Um, I think this is largely um, um, an exercise to try and convince 
loyal supporters back at home in Iran that, look, we sent our president to the United Nations. He was attacked from all sides, but he stood firm and he, you know, uh, stood up to these, um, you know, evil uh, enemies that are trying to um, subvert Iran's national independence, etc. Um, but there's nothing to be gained from anything that he has to say at face value. This is just standard authoritarian politics that we've seen from other authoritarian leaders who um, at the end of November traveled to uh, the United Nations and, you know, regurgitate the standard talking points uh, that come out of the, the Ministry of Intelligence of their respective countries. Well, it is a horrible regime. And it's interesting to note that uh, the equally horrible Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia, the crown prince, he's actually taking away authority from the religious police, making life a little more livable for the average Saudi. Uh, the opposite, opposite seems to be happening in Iran. Right. Ian, that's a low bar, right? When you start measuring yourself against the Saudi crown prince, who's, you know, himself quite a despicable dictator. Um, when you're worse than that person, then, you know, your regime is really, really sort of hitting new lows. <laughs> Indeed. Well, I thank you for joining us, uh, Nada Hashmi. Thanks, Ian, for the opportunity. Appreciate it. And again, I've been speaking with Nada Hashmi, who's the director of the Center for Middle East Studies at the Joseph Corbell School of International Studies at the University of Denver. He's the author of The People Reloaded, The Green Movement and the Struggle for Iran's Future. And his latest book is Sectarianization, Mapping the New Politics of the Middle East. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.